What do you think, in your opinion, what makes for a good friendship? Communication. Okay. So, uh, in, in your opinion, um, what do you think it would take for uh, a daughter to have a good uh, daughter-parent relationship? Um, mutual respect. Mutual respect. Okay. Well, pick on you. I know you just a little bit. How about you? What do you think it would take to have a really great friendship that would last you the rest of your life? Dedication to each other. Okay, really good. And uh, how about you? Looking for a relationship with your parents all your life. You want it to be the very best. What do you think it would take? Um, honesty. honesty. Okay, all right. It'd be curious for me to hear from the parents' end of things <laughs> uh, what you think would be the case. Uh, and normally, I would be running a, a PowerPoint uh, up here at this time, and um, I do not know why my Apple TV box does not want to surface, uh, or I would still be doing that. Uh, something I'll have to explore. Nope. So, let me uh, talk a little bit about a strong bond. You know, uh, Marriage is usually one of those strong bonds that people have, but it's also true that friendships fit the course, right? Many of us know what it's like to have uh, uh, a spouse that we, we, we sense that we're really close to, and we've enjoyed being married to them for many, many years. Uh, I am in that situation. I feel like my wife understands me exceptionally well, in fact, sometimes too well, um, and I'm sure some of you feel the way, same way. But, you know, it's, it's been nice to grow together through the years, to change uh, through life uh, and enjoy each other's sort of loyalty, right? And, uh, of course, friendship is like that. Uh, I have friends that I have been friends with for a very long time, and I expect to go to my grave, and uh, I expect them to actually weep at my funeral, uh, because they'll miss me, and uh, I'm glad that that's the case, right? We have friendships uh, and uh, relationships with others that matter, that to make a difference. Today we want to examine a particular man's bond with, with God. And uh, you'll remember, some of you uh, who were here last week, and those of you who don't, if you just recall some of your Bible, we read the story in Genesis uh, chapter 4 that uh, a boy named Cain was born and he grew up and he murdered his younger brother, Abel. And Cain actually also gave birth to a line of people and in that short line that we see in Genesis chapter 4, a man named Lamech is also born and Lamech also murders someone, a young man, who he murders, he said, just because he struck him. And, and what's interesting was, you know, do we know whether or not he, he was struck by this guy deliberately or was it accidentally? You know, but clearly he makes it, uh, you know, makes a statement, you know, he was a young person, meaning not yet in the prime of his life. And here is this guy who's probably bigger and stronger, and he kills him just for hitting him. It's a horrible story. And in between these 
two shocking murder stories that are in the Bible, we begin to read about Cain fathering a child. And then he built a city, and he named that city after his son. And then we learn that Lamech, who was part of Cain's line, became the first polygamist. And then there is a man in Cain's family line, Jabal, who was the father of all those people who become ranchers. They, they raise the larger domestic animals, cattle, for example, not just sheep and goats, but cattle and oxen. And then there's another person in Cain's family line. His name is Jubal, and he becomes the father of all people who play the musical instrument, which some of you do, right? And uh, then there's Tubal Cain, who uh, works with bronze and iron, and, and he becomes almost, as it were, the, the father of modernization and technology and industrialization. And then we learn that Lamech murders this young man. And in these things, we see that big city life and fame and children, in fact, even having a city named after you, so that's pretty good fame, right? We find that these things, as well as multiple lovers and followers and educating people to, you know, to play music and to, to learn how to ranch and to, to work with metals, uh, industrialization and technology, music and the arts, all of these things Though not evil in and of themselves, they are insufficient to save us, to make us also better people in and of themselves. They are insufficient. I mean, we know that because Cain was a murderer, right? And then we, we have all this history of all this stuff that goes on through his family line, and yet the endpoint person of his family line is still a murderer. In fact, we could say a worse person than Cain, because Cain, when he was addressed by God and says, what have you done? Cain just denied it, whereas Lamech writes a song about it. The first song in all of Scripture. He writes a song about murdering someone. Whoa. So the question is, what will keep us from hurting our closest family members? What will keep us from hurting the people we care about, our friends? Will big city life and human achievements such as children and fame and lovers and fo having followers and, and, and maybe education or being an educator, will leaving a legacy save us? Well, technology and modernization, will that save us? Will music and the arts save us? If these things cannot save, what can? And then we also read at the end of chapter 4, Genesis 4, that Adam and Eve had a son named Seth. And Seth fathered a son named Enosh. And then we start thinking about the New Testament. And we realize that in Luke chapter 3, verse 38... Jesus is called the son of Enosh, the son of Seth. And we discover in this short genealogy of Seth and, and his son, Jesus' family line. And the hint of a promised Savior rises before us again. And we begin to think about not what, but who could save us. Who could save us? It isn't big city life or human achievements, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. 
Well, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, we discover that when Seth is born, people begin to not only call upon, but the Hebrew expression would be to call out the name of God. They begin to speak about God to other people. And guess what? Folk eagerly, happily listened. Really? There are people who want to hear about God and would be happy to hear us. And so here we see when humans are at their worst, when, when their life story is about murdering other people, when they even write songs about it, when humans are at their worst, God is still at his best, right? He's still working on human hearts, even in the midst of our horrid depravity. And the idea is that in Genesis 4.26, that when human beings begin uh, telling other people, folk listened. When they began telling other people about God, people said, say more, say more. I want to hear what you have to say. And that's where I want to pick up Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 contains a genealogy, and let's be candid with each other. Most of us do not like biblical genealogy. Yeah. <laughs> They're way too long for our taste, and quite frankly, they have some really weird names in them, right, that are very difficult for most of us to pronounce. And we're not even sure why they appear in the Bible anyway. In fact, some of these names appear in, in said genealogy, and doom, they're gone. We never hear about them again. And so we say, well, what was the point of putting them in the Bible in the first place? Well, earlier we had read a short genealogy of Cain's family line. And guess what? None of them appear later on in the Bible. Apparently, all of these people perished in the flood. And then we read a short genealogy of Adam and Eve, and the only thing that seemed to, to be important about it is it points us to the promised Savior, Jesus. But in Genesis chapter 5, we have what we call a linear genealogy. We select one person from our family line and we focus on just that one individual and no one else. Genesis 5 is about 10 generations of people. Who are they? Well, there's Adam and Seth and Enosh and Kenan and Mahalalel and Jared and Enoch and Methuselah and another Lamech, a different Lamech, and Noah. And when we hear Noah's name, uh, interestingly enough, in this uh, short genealogy, we hear a little prophecy about him, that he is a person who's going to bring rest and comfort and relief to the human race. And we wonder, in what way? How will he do that? Uh, combating the damage that sin has done. And the topic of the flood gives us reason to pause just a little bit, and this is where I really do wish that my Apple TV was not balky today, first time I've had that happen like this, because I have a wonderful slide sitting right in front of me right now that is an incredible graph. It shows all the ages of that early generation, nine different people we Threw out Enoch's name because, you know, God took him to heaven. Nine generations of people, and that graph just goes pretty much straight across. All of these people live a wonderfully long life. In fact, 
there's only two of them that live less than 900 years. Two. And one of them lives 895, so, you know, do we really want to count that person? The other one lives 777 years. But then our human uh, lifespan changed dramatically after the flood. And that slide, by the way, looks remarkable because it starts way up here at the top at 950 and it drops dramatically in just the next generation, 300 years, another drop of about 150 years, and it moves all the way down from 950 to 110. From the flood to the exodus, nearly a thousand years to a hundred years. Why that change in longevity so quickly? Man. And so that's what we hear when we, we read through the book of Genesis. What accounts for this staggering loss of longevity? Well, back to Genesis chapter 5. It's firmly connected to things we've read before. We read Genesis 5 and we hear about God. We hear about creation. We hear about Adam and Eve and the fall into sin. We hear about the promised Redeemer. And uh, you're just picking up uh, something entirely different now. Cain and Abel and Seth, we hear about all of that stuff, uh, and uh, I'm not sure what you're expecting me to do there, Peter, um, but uh, we hear about all these people, and you know, the amazing part to me is when we move on into Genesis chapter 5, everything seems very familiar to us. In fact, when we get into Genesis chapter 5, we also even learn it's structurally very much like the early part of Genesis where, where God would say, you know, God spoke and then it would say, and, and uh, the evening and the morning were the first day and the second day and the third day. And you would hear this kind of repetition all through the creation story. Well, when you get to Genesis 5, you hear that kind of repetition too, and it goes like this. X lived Z years, and he fathered, and then it ends like this. All the days of X were Z, and he died. And this repetition that we, we found so almost comforting in Genesis uh, chapters 1 and 2 and so on make us think. Well, we're still talking about human history, about all the things that God wants to accomplish. But we're also thinking in our mind, hmm, if this Genesis 5 sounds so very familiar to Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4, is God trying to start again in almost like a new creation, slightly damaged? Yes, definitely damaged. Is he trying to start again? I mean, Abel is dead. Cain has fled, run away from God. Does God need to start again? And yes, he does. And so we hear about the birth of a, of a boy named Seth. We begin reading in Genesis chapter 5. This is the written account of the descendants of Adam. When God created human beings, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and called them human. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his likeness according to his image, and named him Seth. And after the birth of Seth, Adam lived another 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters. And Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. We 
begin to think, well, in the beginning, isn't it, didn't we read that when God created human beings, he created them in the likeness of God? But now we're beginning to hear about people who are birthed in the likeness of someone other than God. And we begin to wonder, is that a good thing? Because it doesn't sound so good. Adam and Eve are messed up now. We learn about the sad truth that sin is transmittable through DNA and other ways. Ugh, right? Ugh. How many of you are parents? Do you remember uh, how long it took you to discover that your children had some of your faults? How early in their life did you discover it? Anybody? Immediately. Yeah. <laughs> you hear that? Um, it's a sad commentary on our own life as parents. When we look into your life and we look into your heart and we go, oh boy, why couldn't you have picked uh, some traits of maybe your, your mom or your dad? You know, instead of being like us, I always wanted a daughter and I got one, but I wanted a daughter who was like her mother, not like me. And guess what I got? One that's quite a bit like me. And you know, I don't know if you found this out. One time I tried to date a girl who was very much like me, and I found it incredibly annoying. <laughs> well, having a child that's just like you, I mean really just like you, even shares your DNA, can be at times incredibly annoying. They have all of your weaknesses. Yeah, they have your strengths too, which you like to see, but they have all your weaknesses. And boy, butting heads... With somebody who is just like you is pretty common. Hmm. We find the sad truth that sin is transmittable through DNA. Both nature and nurture makes us sinners. Everyone in Adam's family line is dramatically and totally affected. Instead of being an unselfish person now, they are all the opposite. I remember the first time I heard the sound of my daughter's angry voice. They had just taken her out of the womb and were giving her a shot. <laughs> so what does that say? And I remember the, the nurse saying, boy, I feel sorry for, their, for her parents. <laughs> and I'm standing off to the side going, ugh, you know? That's my child screaming in such an angry tone. We find out very quickly that our children are selfish and angry people. But the good news is that as soon as there was sin, there was a Savior. Had God not stepped in immediately, humanity would have perished immediately. But God did intervene. And again, you know, I said this wonderful picture. It looks really good on my iPad. It's the picture of a fish in a balloon. You'll have to imagine it. It's a goldfish inside of a water balloon. So I want you to imagine that in your mind. Fish in a water balloon. And then I want you to imagine that some perverse person comes along with a sharp dagger we'll call sin and pokes that water balloon and yet there is a photographer nearby snapping very fast frame pictures. 
when that balloon bursts, there is a period of time in which the fish knows hardly anything different, right? The water is still, you know, pretty much surrounding the fish. It's still in what it seems to think of as a nice environment, welcoming environment, has no idea that it's going to be mere seconds or less, and it will be flopped on the floor gasping for every breath. There's a sense in which this is where we are at as human beings. Sin has popped the balloon that has kept us safe and warm and comfortable. And it were not for God giving us time, the best gift God has ever given us, time, we would be dead. He has given us time. Time so that we could reflect upon Adam and Eve's choices and make our own decisions for or against God. Time is that big gift that God has given us. Are you using yours well? Well, when we read that Adam had lived for 130 years and became the father of, uh, of uh, all these children, we get a chance then to look at our own lives and say, you know, time is what enables us to see things come to fruition and wonder, could we have done better? When we have time as parents, we get an opportunity to see how sin affects our children and affects us as we parent our children. For we do not always do the best we can. Are we using our time well? Do we take it for granted? Are we using our time in such a way that every day we become closer to God or not? Well, of the ten generations that are found in Genesis chapter 5, I want to focus next on the seventh generation. It reads like this. When Enoch was 65 years old, he became the father of Methuselah. And after the birth of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God for 300 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Enoch lived 365 years walking in close fellowship with God. And then one day God took him. We read in this passage that it was after the birth of Methuselah that he began to walk with God. And I could not help but ask myself, are you kidding me? I mean, most kids have no idea how much time and energy they siphon away from their parents, right? Any of you uh, want to add to this list down the road? You can here in just a few minutes. Pregnancy alone eats up time. The doctor's visits, and then maybe, maybe making sure you get sufficient exercise in order to have a healthy baby. And then there's more careful food preparation if you want to have a healthy child. And then there are meals, and boy, can pregnant women eat. I mean, look at my little wife over here. She's tiny. Raise your hand real quick so everybody can see. She's small, right? I mean, I remember, you know, after having two big meals through the day, she would belly up to the table in the evening and down four potatoes before she would get to the rest of the stuff. It takes time to prepare all that and to eat it, right? And then, of course, there's clothing because, you know, as you get a little bigger, you need something else to wear. And so... Uh, women go shopping for that kind of thing, right? 
And uh, then there's furniture shopping. You need a crib for the baby and maybe a rocking chair for the baby and mom and baby and dad. And then there's, of course, all the people that you have to tell. Hey, we're expecting. You got to call people and text them and write them and all the stuff that's going on. And then they want to talk and share your enthusiasm and so on. And then there's the sleepless nights that happen. Especially as the woman progresses in pregnancy and begins to keep you awake. Sleepless nights for you, sleepless nights for, for her, as the baby is constantly waking her. And then there's finally the hospital time. And the delivery. And then there's the nightly feeding times. Boy, what a loss of sleep, right? The diaper changes, the baths, the dressing the baby, and the hours and the hours and the hours comforting a fussy baby and then there's reading to the little one hour after hour and playing various uh, childlike and childish games and then there's tons of walks and drives in the car in order to put the baby to sleep any of you need to add some there's nursing scrapes and bruises and meals 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 that you plan for children right and then it's only equaled by Clean up, clean up, clean up. House cleaning, dishwashing, laundry, and along the way there are lots of teaching moments, teaching kids how to button their shirt, how to tie their shoes. You know, why is the sky blue? If you know the answer to that, let me know. Uh, I got asked that one, and I still am not entirely sure. But <coughs> we read that it was after the birth of Methuselah that Enoch began walking with God. Are you kidding? Where did he make the time? And I didn't say find the time. How did he make the time to do so? And is there something in parenting that is potentially capable of making us more like God? Making us want to seek God out? If so, what is it? What is it? Well, then we read that Enoch walked with God for 300 years. Now, many of us feel like it's a great accomplishment that we stay close to God today. I mean, if, if, if we are, you know, close to God, if we're not doing our own thing and, and maybe not a very good thing, if we feel like we did that today, we, we feel successful. And if we have managed to be, you know, like spiritual for a whole week, woo! And if a whole year goes by and we feel we've done pretty well, we get up in church service and we talk about it and say to people, can I get a witness? You know. But this man, after he has his child, walks with God for 300 years. 300 years. And each year, he just kept getting closer and closer to God. There were no walks on the wild side. There were no moments where he said, you know, God, uh, I've been religious. I've been good for a while. I think I'm going to take a week off. Maybe even a month. I need a break, God. I need to be able to enjoy life and do something different. You know, there were no times that we read about in the Bible where he says to God, you know, you're kind of like a millstone around my neck. You're weighing me down. You're keeping me from being who I want to be. Who I really am. No, he didn't do any of that. Instead, he walked with God for 300 years. 
There is no one who does something they don't like for 300 years. Is that a safe statement? No one. 300 years? Really? And so I, I'm curious today, you know, would you agree with me that most Christians, including Adventists, uh, we often like to uh, get people to become religious in a particular way. We begin to talk to them about the shortness of time and the uncertainty of life. To pressure them into becoming a Christian. We use the shortness of time and the uncertainty of life like a dual-edged sword to carve our way in and say, you should be thinking about God. And we use that pressure on them to keep it up, to keep them faithful through the years of their life. Am I right? Would you agree that I'm right? This is the tools that we use quite often. But what if we said to them, I want you to take whatever time you need in order to make an informed decision for or against God. And maybe they would even ask us, you know, what kind of life does God want us to live when we're in a relationship with him? And in the story of, Je of Enoch in Genesis chapter 5, the answer would come back, it needs to be of a quality that would last at least 300 years. 300 years. 300 years sounds miserable to most of us because we have such a poor conception of God and a very poor conception of the life that God wants us to live. 300 years? Wow. And then we read that the man had other sons and daughters. If one child did not siphon off energy and time from his life, think what having the time, 300 years, to have other children would do. And yet, during that entire period, he stays tight with God. The additional challenges of raising children who are so radically different from each other, am I right? Does not impact his relationship with God for the negative. And one of the things I've discovered to my horror in life no one feels like they have a handle on parenting. It's always one grand experiment. And unfortunately, kids, you're the guinea pigs. Right? And we've been the guinea pigs. We didn't know what we were doing, but we did it anyway. And parenting also comes with a lot of heartaches. But none of these things kept him away from God. And do you imagine that that was the only thing that he had to do in life? I mean, when you've had time to, you know, 365 years, when you've had that kind of time to father children, it seems to me like you've also got to find a way to feed them and clothe them. But that did not keep him away from God. And I can imagine perhaps that he, he decided that he would be, you know, the same kind of work that Abel did, caring for sheep and goats. And he would come home from caring for the flock and he would be just beating his head going, oh, sheep are so stupid. And he would come home and his children would be doing something equally foolish. 
Your children never do that, right? I remember our daughter loved, she loved to, um, to bake using no recipes. Um, for the most part, we always called all those grand scientific experiments, chemistry experiments. When you don't use a recipe and you just start adding stuff willy-nilly, some of you are nodding, yeah. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And I would go, oh, you, you know that dad has to pay for all that stuff that you're using. And we're just going to throw in the garbage, right? Because I'm not eating that. Um, anyway, mind-boggling. And then after all this, we read, God took the man. I mean, what does that mean? You know, God took the man. Um, and fortunately, there's a text in Psalm 49, verse 15, that makes it very clear that a person is redeemed by God from the clutches of the grave, and then God takes him to heaven. That's the expectation of the psalmist. And that's what happened with Enoch. And I think the story goes something like this. God comes down, he talks to Enoch, he says, hey, let's go for a walk today. And Enoch and God begin going for a walk, and they enjoy each other's company down by the river, and they talk about all kinds of things in Enoch's day, about his children, about the sheep, his wife. They have a great time together, and God says, hey, how about tomorrow we meet together and uh, we go intertubing? And, and, and Enoch says, yeah, that sounds great. You know, and so they, they get, uh, you know, a goat skin or whatever, and they ride on this thing, and they enjoy each other's company. And, and day after day, they're doing fun things together and things that are mind-expanding and, and just really enjoyable for Enoch. And, but as they walk, they keep getting farther and farther away from Enoch's house. And one day, God says, you know, it's a long ways back to your place. Why don't you just stay the night with me today? I don't know how you imagine those words, and God took him. I don't know. But God bypassed death and the grave with Enoch, and he just took him straight to heaven. Are you walking with God? Are you and I walking with God? Like Enoch, are we walking with God? And not only do we get to ask ourselves that question, are we walking with God? We get to ask ourselves this. Is our walk with God worthy of a 300-year test? Are there elements in our walk with God that are so good that people would be willing to practice them along with us for 300 years? Are they kind of boring, our practices of walking with God? Do they need more? Do they need some innovation? Do they need some energy? It's almost like a, a test. What, what qualifies as a walk with God? Well, 300 years. Can you do this for 300 years and still be growing in your excitement of it? 299 years later? Or would you be done? What does your walk with God look like if you're walking with him? Is it exciting? Is it fresh? Is it getting better? Or is it stagnated? Does it need new life? Which is what God brings in Genesis chapter 5. Remember, things were kind of 
looking dim, God brings new life. And people begin to shout out again and talk about God. Are you walking with God? And as you walk with God past that 300-year test, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for giving us an opportunity again to think about some of the early stories in Scripture. We think about uh, Adam and Eve and, and about Seth and how this must have come to them in the loss of, of Abel, you know, who died and was tragically murdered, and Cain, who, who ran away from God and his parents. And it was like starting again with Seth. Thank you that we can begin again uh, so many times in life. And, and Father God, then we think about Enoch, and we think about this man who in what would us be challenging circumstances in life, and yet somehow, some way, you and he establish such a tight relationship that it goes on and on and on. In fact, today he's still walking with you. He did not stop at 300 years. He has added thousands. And each day, I believe, things are getting better for him all the time. He's becoming smarter. He's becoming kinder, sweeter, more winsome. He's becoming stronger. Father God, we want to walk with you like Enoch did. Would you guide us to having that desire and to acting on it, as well as if we are walking, would you make our walk fresh, strong, innovative, 